You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Good sleep. It's so important, yet so elusive. How can we safely help our patients get adequate sleep? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. Nancy Foldvery, Director and Section Head of the Sleep Disorder Center at the Neuroscience Institute of the Cleveland Clinic. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Foldvery. Thank you. We have a number of pharmacologic options to try to help our patients get better sleep. Is there a framework in which you look at these? Well, we've got um, the traditional benzodiazepine hypnotics that have really declined in use since the uh, non-benzodiazepine hypnotics uh, came on the market beginning with Ambien about 12, 15 years ago. And so now um, we're looking at uh, four or five newer drugs that we believe work very much like benzodiazepines do, but have far fewer side effects, we believe, and significantly less potential for addiction. So we're talking about the drugs that include Ambien and Sonata, Lunesta, and then most recently the newest kid on the block, which is uh, Rosarum, which is actually in a different class of melatonin uh, agonist. And regarding the, the old benzodiazepines, are there certain situations where you still might use a Restoril uh, or Dalmain for particular patients? I don't, and I'm sure other people do. Certainly those are less expensive drugs than the uh, newer classes, but they have long half-lives. Many of them have long half-lives, and even the shorter half-life benzos tend to have a hangover effect, particularly in older people who are prone to getting up at night because their sleep is fragmented anyway. There's a risk of falls and injuries and confusion. And so I think it's pretty infrequent now when I personally will prescribe a benzo for sleep. And certainly we have other things for anxiety uh, that might be better. And and the tolerance issue, I imagine, has to enter into staying away from the benzodiazepines as well. Absolutely. Uh, Do you see the same type of concerns with regard to either psychological or physical tolerance with the non-benzodiazepine products you mentioned? I think we see less of that, uh, particularly when patients are discontinuing them. I think there's less... There certainly is less withdrawal symptomatology, and I think there's less psychological addiction to these agents. In terms of older choices as well, tricyclics. Uh, Often we would go to trazodone as a good medicine for helping people to stay asleep or low-dose samitriptyline. I take it these are not your favorites uh, either. Well, you know, trazodone has a role, I think, particularly since there is so much overlap with insomnia and depression. I think that trazodone is a very reasonable option for starters in some patients. And so I've used trazodone myself. I tend not to use tricyclics because they've got a host of uh, adverse effects as well. And I'm, I really don't think that they're uh, much more effective than perhaps Benadryl is. Again, the, the baggage with some of them with the anticholinergic effects. Uh, uh, so there are better choices, you feel, than the amitriptylines, doxepins, the tricyclics. I, I think the non-benzodiazepine hypnotic class in general is uh, much more tolerable. There certainly have been side effects associated with them, and there's been things in the news, including the sleep driving mm-hmm. uh, incident, and now these, all these medications have a uh, warning uh, on their packaging, warning people about various types of behaviors that can surface from sleep with these agents. I think the same is true with other types of drugs as well, and I don't think 
those are that the prevalence of those problems is high enough to uh, discourage people from using these if if they're appropriate. Are there any uh, clinical red flags that might uh, make you say, "Oh, this is really not somebody I, I would want to use an Ambien or a, a Lunesta in." They they might have an adverse effect like that. When I'm thinking about medicating people, I, the first thing I think about is how much time they spend in bed and you know what time do they go to bed and how what do they do in the morning because some of these drugs still can be active in the morning. And particularly for insomniacs who may only be sleeping a couple of hours, and if they get up to four or five, for them, that's great. Uh, They may still have a fair amount of medication in their system when they're getting up in the morning. People who are chronically sleep-deprived in general can have strange automatic behavior in sleep and, and do funny things like eat in their sleep or drive in their sleep. And so I think, for me, one of the most important things is sort of figuring out how much time this patient can spend in bed And is there any concern that they'll get up in the middle of the night and injure themselves as a result of taking a medication like this? So someone who already has that very fragmented sleep, and you really have to think about, do they have the time and are they going to stay in bed? For most of these drugs, particularly the long-acting Ambien and Lunesta, the expectation is that they're going to be in bed for eight hours. And if they're really typically in bed for two to four hours, I think there's some concern there that there could be a problem. Sonata being uh, very short-acting is uh, more ideal then for the person who's not expecting to stay in bed very long. And with regard to Ambien in particular, have you seen a, a real clinical benefit to the newer CR formulation? Many patients have come to me asking for it because they're comfortable with Ambien. It's been very effective, and yet uh, they feel that when it wears off in the early morning hours, they're waking up earlier than they'd like to. And so we've uh, when it came out, we converted many patients from Ambien to the CR, uh, and I'm not aware of any of those patients having any particular problem with the longer-acting agent. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Nancy Foltveri, Director and Section Head of the Sleep Disorders Center at the Cleveland Clinic, and we are talking about some pharmacologic approaches to helping people with sleep. Uh, with regard to Lunesta, in, in my practice, I think Think about it as a very much like an ambient type of thing, a seven, eight-hour type of sedative medicine. Is that a correct weight view, Lunesta? Yes, it's clearly got a longer half-life, five, six hours, and I think there is some potential for a hangover effect in the morning uh, for people who aren't planning on spending six to eight hours or more in bed. And that's actually the labeling clearly indicates that this should be prescribed for patients who plan to be in bed for at least eight hours. Lunesta is the only one of these to my knowledge, that has uh, an FDA indication for chronic insomnia use because in clinical trials it was the only one who monitored patients with polysomnography as well as other measures up to six months from treatment onset. And the Lunesta pharmaceutical representatives will say that some of their competition, there is a wearing off effect uh, very promptly sometimes that the others do not continue to help people sleep as time goes on. Is that something that you've seen? You know, I don't know. There are many patients who who went on Ambien in in the early to mid-90s are still on Ambien and have a lot of benefit from it, even though really they're they're meant to be used for acute or short-term situations. I'm really not sure. I haven't seen that in my own practice, that there's a significant difference between the efficacy of these long-term. And the bitter taste with Lunesta, is that something that is common, and uh, is there any effective way to deal with that? I'm not sure there is really an effective way to deal with that. Uh, the few patients that have reported it to me, uh, for the most part, were able to just uh, learn to ignore it once they knew it was from the medication. So I'm not sure it's a, it's a huge uh, hindrance. 
And then Sonata, as you mentioned, I, I think of as the one for uh, a person who can initiate sleep but then wakes up, can't maintain sleep. Is that a good place to position that? Absolutely. And I think that's ideal for the person who wants the control to decide whether they should remedicate themselves. In other words, you know, if you've taken a, you know, an Ambien in the middle of the night, we typically, and they wake up again, we typically discourage people from, from redosing themselves because of the hangover effect in the morning. But Sonata, I think, is ideal in that regard where patients can take one before bed or not even if, if not needed, but have the comfort of knowing that if they wake up at 2 or 3 in the morning, they can take one and uh, be fresh four hours later. And Rosarum is, is kind of fascinating to me, that a totally different idea, resetting the suprachiasmatic nucleus, I, I think. How long does one need to use Rosarum before saying, gosh, I, I should be reset by now, it should be working, uh, maybe I need something else? Well, I think Rosarum takes a little bit longer to kick in than the other agents. And typically, it works best for people who have not been exposed to all of these other drugs. And I'm not sure it works much better when the person's come and they've already had everything else on the market. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, it works best in drug-naive patients, and I, and I think it takes three to four weeks to work. And so I counsel people, sort of like you would if instituting a tricyclic or an SSRI, that, that you don't expect to have benefit tonight and that it may take as long as three to four weeks to really uh, realize the full benefit of the drug. And I imagine it is also something best used for chronic insomnia, not something to be used uh, intermittently. Absolutely. That's right. Of course, they tout complete lack of dependence. Uh, is that something that we can rely on? I think so. I think so. I haven't had any patients have, have problems with uh, tolerance or withdrawal. And with any of these, uh, is there a significant rebound? I often get asked, gosh, doc, if I use this and then stop it, am I going to uh, have a real deterioration in my sleep? I think with these newer agents, there's less, certainly less rebound than there was in the past with benzodiazepines. So maybe some, but certainly not what we saw with the older agents. That's correct. And uh, in terms of travel, do you ever use these for a patient who is having a, an overseas flight and wants to sleep? What are your recommendations there? also needs to be individualized. Um, I have used them in that scenario before. I know a lot of physicians will use benzodiazepines in that situation. Uh, for people who are going transatlantic, I'll often, and, and may be prone to jet lag, I'll often uh, use melatonin and mm-hmm. with some education about when to take the melatonin, and that, that I think is more effective. The concern with travel is uh, for me, is simply that whatever you're medicating the patient with, there is some possibility that they may have to awaken suddenly, and they may be confused and disoriented. And so I think I wouldn't recommend that in someone who's traveling alone, but if someone's traveling with a companion uh, and has a significant problem, I think it's probably reasonable. Uh, a physician once told me, he was sharing some stories with me, and he told me about himself traveling to give a talk somewhere in South America and taking his favorite sleep aid, uh, mm-hmm. and he couldn't wake up you know, when he needed to catch his flight, he, you know, ended up literally in a different country in South America. (laughs) I mean, this thing, Uh this happens. Mm -hmm. And so I think people need to use these agents when away from home conservatively and with proper instruction and ideally if they're traveling uh, with someone who can monitor for, for adverse effects like this. And in the case of insomnia with depression, uh, if we're putting someone on an SSRI, uh, is, is there a period of time when we should see the sleep patterns normalize? Do you ever use some of these non-benzodiazepines in conjunction at the onset of therapy? How should we approach that? I think you can use them in conjunction at the onset. I um, tend to 
become more interested in treating the underlying disorder. And uh, as you know, it takes can take weeks and weeks to really figure out if, if an antidepressant is going to be effective for someone. And typically when people come to the sleep center, to our center, they often are very desperate I mean, because they've worked through other uh, routes and tried things on their own. And so some people really come with a sense of desperation, like this is my last hope, and they're on the edge of not functioning so well during the day. And when they have that type of desperation, I think it's reasonable to add uh, one of the newer agents that's potentially going to give them some relief short term with the, with the expectation that uh, over time it, it'll take some time for underlying treatment of the depression to, um, to be managed appropriately. I want to thank Dr. Nancy Fultberry, who has been with us from the Cleveland Clinic today as we've been discussing the approach to insomnia. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.